If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Samuel chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood? By killing David without cause. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with its clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then, David sent the, then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. 
And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, Lord we come to you and we ask that you would open up your word, that we would see it with eyes afresh, that we would see it and it would take deep root in our heart. Lord, we ask this, for you alone are able. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. I believe it is important for us to remember that we do not live in a unique time. I think for many of us, as we think about the church, as we think about Christianity, as we think about professing our faith, we think that we live in a unique and a uniquely bad time in all of human history. And this feeling feeds upon itself, for we cannot look out into the world and not see attacks upon the church, attacks upon our faith by the culture, by media, by politicians, by everyday people in everyday neighborhoods. But the problem with thinking that our time is unique and uniquely bad is that we fail to obtain the blessing of seeing God's deliverance and purpose throughout all of history. You see, God's people have always been under attack by the world. God's people have always been persecuted. The world has always tried to destroy the church. But God has ever remained faithful and He protects his people. And if we understand that, then we have great confidence that the same God that preserved David from the attacks of Saul is the God that the Christian serves today. The same God that can move providences to his own ends and that can intervene in the world to protect his people at the time of David is the same God that we know today. And so this morning, I would like us to look at this text in chapter 19 and to see the attacks that come upon David, specifically from Saul, and to understand and to see what is going on here, what the Lord would have us to learn. The first thing that we will see is that there are persistent attacks, that the attacks continue to come upon David, wave upon wave. The second thing we see is the providential protection that God gives to David. And the third thing we see is that God speaks to us in the midst of this. He gives us pronouncements 
in the midst of these events. Persistent attacks, providential protection, and pronouncements in events. Let's begin then by looking at these attacks that come upon David from Saul. And the very first thing that we notice if we delve into them is that these attacks that come are irrational. Now, what do I mean by this? Let's try and remember the relationship that David has with Saul. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel, but let's recollect the relationship that David has to Saul. First of all, David came to Saul to help him. You remember that Saul was beleaguered by this harsh spirit that came upon him, and David was brought in to play music to soothe Saul. David was come to help Saul. But he didn't just help him in that way. You may recall that David went out when no one else in all of Israel was willing, and he stood before Goliath, and he slew Goliath and saved Israel that day. He was the hand of God in the midst of that battle. So David has helped Saul in battle and in home, and he was also intensely loyal to Saul. He continued to win victory after victory over the Philistines, serving Saul and Israel, leading the army, in spite of all of the attacks that Saul brought against him. David was close friends with the crown prince, with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he actually married Saul's daughter, Michal. But there is one other thing about their relationship that we cannot forget. And that is that David was a constant reminder to Saul of the Lord's judgment. When Saul looked upon David, he realized that he failed. Where David had faith, Saul had none. Where David had courage, Saul had none. Where David had loyalty, Saul had none. And so it was a constant reminder of the judgment that the Lord had pronounced against Saul. Now, if we were to try and understand what the greatest danger was that Saul faced, if we set up a blue ribbon investigative committee, and sent them to Israel to look into all corners of the land, what is the most dangerous thing to Saul? I think what they would come back with is they would say, well, of course, it's the Philistines. The Israelites have been fighting the Philistines since well before David's time, since the beginning of the book that we've been studying. Someone else might say, well, yes, the Philistines are a great danger, but there's another danger, too, that's related to that. That is division in Israel. Israel has been divided. You may recall when Saul first came to the kingship, not everyone would follow him. And so there was always the threat of division in Israel, and that was even more dangerous as they faced the Philistines. But the interesting thing is that none of that mattered to Saul. Saul opens up this chapter with a murder plot not to go after the king of the Philistines, not to go after rebels in Israel, but the chapter opens in verse 1 with a plot to kill David. Now, as we look at this objectively, we see 
that this was an extremely foolish thing to do. It is foolish even in its execution. Now, it is one thing for Saul to harbor ill will in his heart against David. But it is another thing for him to try and harm David himself. And what he does is he goes up to Jonathan and he says, we have to kill David. And then he turns to the leaders in Israel and he says, we have to kill David. Now, I don't know about you, but this strikes me as about the absolute worst plot anyone could possibly think up. Now, we know from the text, but the Israelites also know, and Saul knows, that David's best friend is Jonathan. So, I'm not telling you to plot. But if you were to plot, you probably don't start with the best friend of the person you're plotting against. And the text bears that out, doesn't it? Because we don't go very far at all, and Jonathan comes to David and says, Guess what? My father wants to kill you. You better be really careful, and we need to figure this out. So, not only is this a foolish and irrational plot that Saul is putting together to go against his greatest ally, his greatest chief. But he doesn't even go about it in a good way. And I think this is important, not because we're to look at Saul and to to call him names or to think he is stupid, but because this is what this kind of attack does to you. It's irrational. It makes absolutely no sense. Why would Saul take this action? The only reason he would is because he is a man gripped by sin. All Saul can see around him is what is colored by his sin. It's as if he's wearing sin-colored glasses, and he just assumes that Jonathan will think like he does. He just assumes the leaders of Israel will think like he does, even though it doesn't make any sense for them to do so. You see, Saul thinks that they will be as driven by self-interest as he is. Now, there is a caution here for you and for me. And that is, before we assume what the hearts of other people are, we need to examine our own heart. We need to not write on them our motives. We need not to assign to them our sinful tendencies. We need to examine our own heart first and then go to them. This is, after all, I think nothing less than what Jesus says when he tells us to take the beam out of our own eye before we try to pick the speck out of someone else's eye. You start with yourself. This kind of attack from Saul is irrational. But it's not just irrational. You see, we might associate irrationality with a random act, with one thing happens. We might understand it if a sudden passion seized Saul and this is what caused him to go after David. Now, we experience that, don't we? We have excuses that we make for ourselves. Well, I didn't mean to do it, but I got caught up in the moment. Well, it just came over me. We, we assume that we 
can have passions that overtake us and that that makes us do things that we wouldn't normally otherwise. But here we are seeing from Saul this kind of attack over and over and over again. Twice now Saul has attempted to spear David. And he also attempted to get the Philistines to kill David in battle. And then he sought to lead David astray through his daughter, Michal. And now here he makes yet another plot against David. This is over and over again. It seems that Saul is determined to destroy David. But the other thing we see about this repeated series of events is Saul seems to be expending energy in a fruitless cause. I mean, how many times do you have to fail before you give up? And the other thing is Saul is acting in a way that's, that's contrary to his interests. This kind of attack comes and it is an attack that is unprofitable to Saul himself. Saul needs David to defeat the Philistines. Saul needs David to bring about unity in Israel. Saul needs David who is loyal to him. So what Saul is doing here is not only irrational, it's against his own best interests. Israel is constantly at war in this book. Now, we don't see Saul about to take on the role of leader in battle, do we? The last time we saw a big battle, Saul was hiding. And so why would Saul seek to destroy and deny himself his greatest asset? And that is because Saul's own well-being is not what drives him here. You see, we think people act only in self-interest. But quite often, people do not act in their self-interest. Saul's attacks on David are a sign of the judgment that God has him under. Saul is the one who has the power. He need not fear David. But this hatred that comes up in his soul is a hatred not just of David, but of God himself. He does not want God's kingdom to stand. He wants his own kingdom. He wants to be known. He wants to lead. He wants to rule. And this is the way of the world. You see, the world will come to all sorts of conclusions that seem irrational, that seem unprofitable, just to be free of God. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. So much of the world isn't even sure which pronouns to use with a person. That's how confused they are. So much of the world cannot decide who ranks as the greater victim. So much of the world cannot decide whether people should be able to speak, whether they should be able to speak themselves. And you see, they're all caught up in this, not for their own benefit, they're all caught up in this because they want to be free from God's created order. They want to be free from absolutes. They want to be free from the Lord and His Word. And they're willing to do anything, even harm themselves, to be free from God. Now, perhaps the best example of this that we see in the Bible is that of the Pharisees. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ comes to Israel. He returns as the Messiah. And what do the Pharisees do? They're driven by a blind hatred of Jesus. And in their own pride, they don't think they need God. They don't think they need His grace. And so what they do is they try to destroy God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. You can't imagine anything less in their own interest. You can't imagine anything more irrational. It was against all of God's word that they had not only read, that they had not only studied, but that they had memorized. We may understand and read the scriptures. The Pharisees memorized Isaiah 53. They memorized Psalm 2. They memorized Isaiah 55. And yet, they were willing to put all of this to the side in order to be free from God, to attack Him. Well, what happens then? We need to see why they are unable to destroy the Lord and His work. Why is Saul not able to defeat David? It's because of the protection, the providential protection of God. Now, we need to see what they do not see. We need to see that God protects His anointed. We need to see that God will not allow His plans to be overthrown, that God protects His will and His people. And He does this in two ways. First, in an ordinary providence, and then later, in an extraordinary providence. Now, we must start here because too often our tendency is to focus on the threat and not on God. In trials and in struggles, we must have our eye firmly and primarily on the Lord. This way, our struggles and persecutions and trials will be put in a context. Otherwise, they will swallow us up and we will not be able to see the Lord and His provision. Now, this chapter shows us that God is the one who is in control. And it shows us over and over and over again. It's not as if David is only in one danger. No. He has to escape over and over and over again. And the author makes this clear to us even in the language that he uses. Look with me at verse 10. We see this word, escape. And we see it in verse 10. And then we see it in verse 11. And then we see it again in verse 12. And then we see it again in verse 17. And then we see it again in verse 18. It's as if over and over and over again, the Lord is telling us that David is escaping the attacks of the enemy. That he is preserving David over and over and over again. Now the first incident involves Jonathan. We did note that it seems unusual for Saul to bring Jonathan into this plot. But what God does is, he uses this man and his friendship with David to providentially protect David. This is an ordinary man with an ordinary friendship. There is nothing miraculous or extraordinary about this. As a matter of fact, if we look at as 
Jonathan speaks to Saul, he does so in what we might call a common grace way. He doesn't say to his father, Father, you do realize that it says in God's word. And he gives a quote. He does not say to his father, Father, you know that Samuel has come and pronounced a judgment on you. He doesn't bring anything spectacular into this. He is going down to Saul's level, as it were. What he does is he appeals to Saul's better judgment. He reminds him of David's loyalty. He says, he hasn't sinned against you at all. He reminds him of the blessings that have come from David. And he says, look at how good things have come to us. He says, remember how glad you were, how you rejoiced when he defeated Goliath. And he also points out that Saul's plan is wrong. It is a wicked plan. He says, why will you, in verse 5, sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And then something remarkable happens. Saul turns around 180 degrees. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Now, that's shocking, isn't it? Five minutes ago, Saul's trying to plot David's murder. And now he's swearing that David will live. What is going on here? I think we learn a lesson here. That God is at work in both the ordinary and the extraordinary. In other words, what we are learning is that one of the best ways to face our dilemmas is to meet them head on and deal with them. And that the Lord will bless efforts of His people to resolve these issues. You see, sometimes I think we believe there is no way that we could ever talk with someone who had a different opinion than we have and win them over. It's kind of become the hallmark of our society, right? People of one persuasion have their own news channel they watch, their own websites they go to, their own Twitter feeds they read, their own radio stations they listen to, their own magazines that they read. People of another persuasion have their own things. And we have no discussions amongst ourselves. And it's especially true, I think, of Christians who are fearful. We think we could never talk to someone and act and speak reasonably and ever make a difference. Now, I don't know who you are struggling with in your house or in your workplace or in your school. But I doubt who you are dealing with is as crazy and murderous as Saul. He's like the definition. You know the old joke? Look up crazy and murderous in the dictionary, there's a picture of Saul. And God blesses Jonathan's efforts. Now, that's not because I expect you to have a silver tongue. It's not because I expect you to know just the exact things to say. But what I do know is, it's the same God we serve that Jonathan served. And so we must use these ordinary provinces in our lives. The second ordinary providence involves Michal. And so after David dodges yet another spear, he runs home. But Saul's evil will not be stayed. He pursues David all the way to his home. He posts 
hitmen outside the door. You could just imagine this if this were a movie. It would be dark. There'd be shadows. There'd be somber, foreboding music. The hitmen would be hiding in the shadows, just waiting for David to exit the door so that they can fall on him and kill him. Now think about what Saul is trying to do here. He's trying to make his daughter a widow. Think about that kind of wickedness that that requires. And so it is not surprising that Michal, who's an observant woman, sees what is going on. She sees Saul's henchmen outside, ready to go after David. And she comes to him in verse 11, and she says, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And she helps him to escape by letting him down the window. Now, we don't know if this is a situation where their home is like Rahab's home on the wall itself where he could get outside the city, or whether he simply escapes notice and flees. But it is clear that God is using David's wife her perception, and her initiative and action to save his life. Now, I say this with a little bit of fear and trembling. It doesn't get more ordinary than your spouse. Day upon day, you live in the same place, you eat the same food, you drive in the same car. God is in that ordinary and mundane. God seeks to bless you through that ordinary and mundane. You see, there is a great irony here that comes up. Saul comes up to his daughter and he says, in verse 17, Why have you deceived me? Now think about this for a moment. All Saul has done is deceive Michal. He wanted her to marry David under false pretenses. He even set up the engagement under false pretenses. The marriage was designed to hurt David. So, in Saul's mind, the best way I can hurt David is to give him my daughter. That is not a very nice way to treat your daughters, gentlemen. And yet he has the brazenness to say, why are you deceiving me? Because again, what we see here is Saul only sees things through selfish, sinful glasses. What we see here is God using people and events to protect David. But there are also some extraordinary providences providences as well. The first, I think, is David dodging the spear. Now, I don't know about you, but you would think Saul is at least somewhat trained in military arts. They're in the same room. This is not a hundred-yard spear toss. How does David avoid, not once, not twice, but several times, Saul's attempt to murder him? I think what we're seeing here is God either hindering Saul or giving David some sort of premonition so he's aware of what's going on. I mean, David shouldn't even be expecting this. He's holding an instrument in his hand. Right? This is God at work. We would say this is very unusual. And then what David does next shows us the raw 
power of God. David flees to the one place in all of Israel where he thinks he will be safe. Because after all, who in all of Israel stands up to Saul? It's not Jonathan. It's not the captains. It's not even David. Who gets in Saul's face? Samuel. Not once, but twice, he pronounces judgment on Saul. And Saul has no answer. Saul is just blown away. He knows that he cannot deal with Samuel. So what David has done is analyze this situation and he says, I'm going to go to the best place where I can be safe. The problem is Saul is so far gone, not even that will stop him. Look at verse 20. Then Saul sent messengers to take David to Naoth in Ramah. Saul doesn't care about Samuel anymore. He is going to go after David. And what does David do now? He's completely out of options. Reason with Jonathan hasn't worked. Cleverness and trickery with Michal hasn't worked. And now, not even Samuel will work. You see, what we expect, if we were writing chapter 19, is that Samuel would stride forth with his staff and rebuke Saul. Maybe even hit him on the head with the staff. And say, get out of here and leave David alone forever. That's what we would expect. That's what the hero does, right? Who's the hero of this text? Isn't it Samuel? Isn't it his book? No. The hero of this text is not Samuel. The hero of this text is God. And that's why the Lord allows us to see that not even Samuel can protect David, but God himself will. God is still in control. Because God's plan does not depend on our abilities. God's plan does not depend on the power of our enemies. We are surprised here to see God at work, but we should not be. It is an extraordinary providence. The Spirit of God comes and acts in raw power to make David safe. And it's not as if Saul gives up easily, right? He sends one set of messengers, and they are overcome. Now, when the text tells us they prophesied, what I think we see here is they, are, they lose control of themselves. I think perhaps the best way to think about these men, the first set, the second set, the third set, is to think they're a little bit like Balaam's donkey. You know Balaam's donkey, right? Balaam is riding out to curse Israel. And Balaam's donkey speaks the word of God. Not only a general word of God, but a very specific word of God. You're doing the wrong thing. You will be cursed. So what I think we have here is all of the messengers of Saul being overcome by the Spirit of God and they're prophesying. They are probably speaking to each other God's word. The Lord protects the righteous. The wicked shall fall. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. All of these texts, so to speak, that would show how foolish and godless their errand is. But even this won't stop Saul, will it? 
You know the line, right? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And so Saul, you would think Saul would, would get a clue here. One plot's failed. A second plot's failed. A spear has failed. One set of messengers has failed. A second set of messengers has failed. A third set of messengers has failed. You would think he might start to look into his own heart, but you see, that's not the way of the sinner who is running from God. He does things irrationally. He does things unprofitably. And what he does is, he goes himself and is overcome. And it is a site where he is prophesying. Now, in case you're a little bit concerned about the text, which says, it seems to say to us that Saul is running around naked for a day. You need to know that this word in the Hebrew mostly means taking off one's outer garment. So probably he's shirtless, but he has clothes on. But the idea is, is that you're taking off your outer garment. You're taking off your preparations. You're taking off what you have and have prepared. And you are left to your own devices. That's what's happening to Saul here. So what then can we learn from this story? After all, there's excitement, isn't there? We can cheer on David, can't we? We can even see that the world is a dangerous place for us. It's a place that attacks the people of God, attacks them irrationally, attacks them even when there is no good outcome. But the main lesson that I think we must learn from this story is how we view our relationship with God. How aware of God are we? When you got up this morning, how aware of the Lord were you? Because you see, don't we tend to view God as the place of last resort? When we've tried everything else, and everything has failed, then we go to prayer, right? Doesn't this story teach us and show us that God should be the place of first resort? That the very first thing that we should do when we are in a trial, when we are in a struggle, when we are under attack, is go to the Lord in prayer. Because even if we expect to find deliverance through ordinary things, who is behind the ordinary things? It's God. And if you don't see God in the ordinary things of your life, coincidences, lights that turn green instead of red, cars that start when they shouldn't, people that visit when you weren't expecting them, if you don't see God in those providences, you are a functional atheist. Because the Lord our God works not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary as well. You see, we must not let God's means of deliverance take priority over God. We are tempted to judge God by our own safety, by our own situation, by our own comfort. But that was not true for David. He went from one frying pan to a fire, to another fire, to a different frying pan. 
over and over again. But God never abandoned him, did he? Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well in his commentary. Listen to this quote. Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. You see, God preserves His people. Even now, as we look throughout the globe, the church is being persecuted in India, in China, in Africa. Christians are being murdered and killed and sold into slavery. But God is preserving His church. Never think that God has lost control. We are safe within the protection of God's Spirit. But this does not mean a life of ease. It does not mean complete deliverance from harm. No, what it means is we are safe to rejoice in the Lord and His goodness. And we can do this even in the midst of our struggles. David wrote in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now hear this line. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not in a place of safety. You are there found, O Lord, with provision in the midst of my enemies. But there is one final thing that I want us to see from this text. There is also a warning in this story. There is a warning to be heard. Saul should have seen the hopelessness of his murder plot. He should have seen that he had set himself not just against David, but against God himself. This has been the driving force of his life since chapter 15. Over and over again, Saul seeks to overthrow the Lord and to establish his own kingdom. We see this throughout the Bible, especially in Psalm 2. How the nations rage against the Lord. And so often, we seek to outsmart or outwork God. What God is telling us here is that this is in vain. That our only hope is to surrender to Him. And so if you are here this morning, and you are struggling to succeed in your own selfish or sinful ambition, you need to take note of this text. Because you have two choices before you. You can harden your heart and continue to batter yourself against God, but there is no hope for success in that. Or you can hand your heart over to God so that He may deliver you from your sin and your strife. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not give you all of the desires of your heart, but He will give you a new heart. He will bring you to Himself and He will deliver you not only from the evil which is outside and around you, but He will deliver you from the evil within you. Jesus is Lord, King, and Savior. Let's pray.